0: Uh, If you're visiting for the first time, we're in a series based on the Gospel of John. We're looking into the last few hours in the life of Jesus. By the way, when you think about that, for the followers of Jesus, the last week of his life began with incredibly high expectations. For example, on Sunday... When Jesus made his way into Jerusalem, it's become known as the triumphal entry. And it, it sounds so promising, don't you? And as Jesus, as you think about it, he made his way into the city on the back of a donkey. There were people who took off their coats, their cloaks, They laid them on the ground. There were people who cut palm branches, and they put them in Jesus' path. Others waved them as a sign of honor. But think about this. As Jesus made his way into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey... Crowds lined the streets, and this is what they were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. But that means nothing unless you know what that means, right? It means save us now. Save us now. So picture this, Jesus riding into the city, back of a donkey, crowds lining the streets saying, save us now, save us now. I mean, this is bigger than a a New England Patriots Super Bowl parade. I mean, this is big, what's going down in Jerusalem, right? But understand, that was Sunday. On Monday, you know what Jesus did? He cleansed the temple. You remember that story from Sunday school? Do you remember why? It's because the religious leaders were ripping off the people. You see, at Passover, if you were a Jew, you had to come to the city of Jerusalem. And you had to do two things. You had to pay the temple tax, and you had to make a sacrifice. And the religious leaders had figured out the people needed to exchange their money to pay the temple tax, so the the exchange rate was ridiculous. And not only that, they had to buy an animal to make a sacrifice. And the price of an animal was ridiculous. And it just ticked Jesus off. So he made his way into the temple and he overturned the, all the money changers and he let all the animals out. I mean, it was incredible chaos. That was Monday. Because of that event on Monday, Jesus spent Tuesday and Wednesday going toe to toe with the religious leaders. And by now, they hate him. On Thursday, he's in the upper room having his Passover meal. With the disciples. But I think it's safe to say that Jesus, when he made that grand entrance, he took the city of Jerusalem by storm. He was the topic of conversation. But little did the people realize, in all of the celebration and all of the triumph, that a storm was brewing. Tensions were rising. And he was getting ready to reach a boiling point. But while the storm was brewing, Jesus, as we're seeing in this series, knowing that his hour had come, continued to prepare his disciples for what their life was going to be like after he departed. Now this weekend, if you have your Bible, turn with me to John chapter 17. We're going to be looking at a very, very unique section because we are looking at the longest recorded prayer of Jesus in the Bible. This really is the Lord's Prayer, by the way. We don't see it as the Lord's Prayer. We call the Lord's Prayer the prayer that begins, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's really not the Lord's Prayer. Jesus never really prayed that. In fact, what happened was the disciples observed Jesus praying. And they're like, what is he doing? And he's like, I'm praying. And one day they said, hey, teach us how to do that. And Jesus says, well, I'll give you an example of what a prayer would look like. I'll give you a template that you could work from. You know, start out our Father who art in heaven. So start out with some worship. And then after that, make sure you spend some time asking God for forgiveness for all the mess you have in your life, all the things you've done. And then he said at the end, it's Okay. It's okay to petition God to ask him for some things that you need in your life. But Jesus was really just giving the disciples a model for how to pray. This is actually the Lord's Prayer. And we're going to learn a lot over the next few minutes about what was really on Jesus' heart as he's just a few hours from hanging on the cross. Let me just begin by answering a couple of questions. When did Jesus pray this prayer? Well, if you want to think of it this way, and this kind of helps me. I was a PE major, so I need things like this, okay? Okay. It happened between about midnight and 2 o'clock in the morning. So sometime between midnight and 2 a.m., Jesus prays this prayer. But also keep in mind, this is now the day of the crucifixion. So when Jesus is praying this, he's only seven, eight, maybe maybe nine hours away from hanging on the cross. He knows the clock is ticking. Now here's the second question. Where was Jesus when he prayed this prayer? Well, you'll notice in John 17, verse 1, it said, after Jesus said this, And and that's referring back to what we've been studying in this series. After what he said in John 13, 14, 15, 16, after he said this, he looked toward heaven and he prayed. And then if you jump down to chapter 18, verse 1, it says, when he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples, crossed the Kidron Valley, and on the other side was a garden. So somewhere between the upper room, Jesus made his way through the Kidron Valley But before he got to the Garden of Gethsemane, where we know that he sweat drops of blood, he prayed one more time. Jesus paused. We don't know what he did. Maybe he leaned up against a tree. Maybe he got down on his knees, but he prayed. And I want you to see that there were three things on his heart that he wanted to pray for. First of all, I want you to notice that Jesus prayed for himself. Verse 1, after Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. And when you read that, you can't help but feel the sense of finality, It's because we know by now in this series that the hour is in reference to the cross. The hour is in reference to his death. The hour has come. The time has come. Jesus realizes there's no turning back. Death is imminent. But this is what's interesting. Even though Jesus was going to the cross, he wanted his death to be a thing of glory. He wanted his death to be a thing of beauty. He wanted it to be a a triumph. He didn't want it to be a big downer. He didn't want it to be a tragedy. And that's why he goes on and says in verse 1, Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. The word glorify carries with it the idea of exalting or elevating someone or something. So Jesus is basically saying this. Father, I want my death to glorify you. I want my death to exalt you. I want my death to some way lift you up. Verse 2. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now, this is eternal life. So if you've ever wondered what eternal life is, Jesus said, let me just sum it up for you. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now, it shouldn't shock us that the world considers Christianity a pretty exclusive option. I mean, you ask the average person on the streets, how do you get eternal life? How do you get to heaven to live with God forever and ever and ever? And most people will say, well, you know what? You just gotta be sincere. Whatever you do, you just have to be sincere. If you think you get there through Allah, that's fine, just be sincere. If you think you get there through Buddha, that's fine, just, just gotta be sincere. If you think you get there through Abraham, that's fine, you just gotta be sincere. If you think you get there through the study of Hinduism, that's fine, you just gotta be sincere. But Jesus, think about what he said in John chapter 14, verse 6. Now understand, this is the chapter where Jesus began, let not your heart be troubled, believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. He's talking about heaven. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will return so that I can take you to the place that I'm going to prepare for you. And then right after that, as Jesus is talking about heaven, spending eternity with the Father, this is what he says in John 14:6. I am the way and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus says this, if you want eternal life, if you want to go to heaven for all eternity with the Father, Jesus says, understand, I am the only way you're ever going to get there. Now let me just say this. It's narrow, but it's not exclusive. That's why John three sixteen: for God so loved the world that he gave his own begotten son, so that who so ever. So it's narrow, but again, it's not exclusive. And so Jesus, he wants his death to run this perfect course. So there's not going to be any barrier. There's not going to be any roadblock. any roadblock on this path to be in a relationship with the father, to be reconciled back to the father. And then he says this in chapter 17, verse four, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. What Jesus is saying is this after 33 years on this earth, He says, Father, I have completed everything that you sent me here to do. I have accomplished everything that you've given me to do. There's nothing that you've asked me to do that's been left undone. That's why in just a few hours when Jesus hangs on the cross, before he takes his last breath, what does he say? He says, it is finished. It's not because his life is finished. It's because everything he had been sent here to do had been accomplished. Verse 5, and now, Father... Glorify me. Now, what's the word mean? It means exalt. It means lift up. So basically Jesus is saying, and now, Father, lift me up into your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. What that basically means is this. Jesus is saying right there that after 33 and a half years on this earth, apart from the Father, he was homesick. He was tired of being away. He wants to go home. See, I think we forget that before Jesus left heaven that first Christmas and was dispatched to this earth to become a little baby in the village of Bethlehem, I think we forget that he had enjoyed a perfect relationship with the Father in heaven, a perfect relationship in a perfect environment that is the only existence he had ever known. And now he's saying, I long to be back in your presence. I long for that relationship Again, but Jesus knew that only one thing stood between him and being home with the Father, and that was his death. And so it's as if Jesus speaks into the future and says, I've carried out the job. I've completed everything you sent me here to do. The cross, it's a done deal. The cross, it's a foregone conclusion. And now Jesus says, I'm homesick. Enough is enough. I can't wait to get back home. So Jesus prays for himself, and I think he's kind of praying like, oh, Father, Help me finish strong. I want to finish strong. And now you get to the second part of the prayer where Jesus changes his focus from his needs to the needs of the disciples. And this is what it says in verse 6. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of this world. And the word revealed means to display. In fact, if you could read the verse in the Greek, and the New Testament was originally written in the Greek. It says this. I have displayed to these men the resources by which I live. In other words, I have displayed to these men that my whole lifestyle has been anchored in your power. My whole lifestyle has been possible because of your resources, and I drew upon those resources constantly, verse 6. They, again, a reference to the disciples, they were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. By the way, let me just say, That was a real breakthrough for the disciples. If you've ever read the Gospels, you've probably picked up on the fact that the disciples weren't the brightest bulbs in the box, right? And it must have brought incredible satisfaction to Jesus that finally the light came on. Finally it clicked. Finally they got it. And Jesus describes what finally clicked in verse 8. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted me. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believe that you sent me. Now, that's important, and we'll come back to that for a minute. in a minute. But what's important is Jesus says, now they get it. And I'll give you an example when that took place. Uh, you don't have to turn there, but Matthew chapter 6, verse 16, it says, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, verse 14, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. It clicked. They understood. Now, they still didn't understand the cross. They still didn't understand the whole death thing. They still thought that he was going to set up an earthly kingdom, he was going to overthrow Rome, they were, going to, they were going to have seats of authority, they were going to be involved in his cabinet. And that's why it goes on to say in verse 21, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed And on the third day be raised to life. But look at Peter's response. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this is never going to happen to you. So even though they recognized him as the son of God, they still didn't understand why he came to this earth to die to pay for our sins. And that's why when Jesus died, at least initially, till they regrouped, they, they scattered like rats on a sinking ship. But my point is this Jesus is saying the whole plan has been fulfilled, it's been accomplished. The disciples are now ready to carry the torch of the gospel. They're now ready to move forward. And it was exactly the way God designed it. And then Jesus prays for the unity of the disciples. That's the very first request for the disciples. Verse 11, he said, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. So that's the first request. Jesus prayed that the disciples would be unified. He prayed that they would be one. In other words, Jesus says, Father, just as you and I have had this perfect relationship, just as you and I have been involved in this perfect fellowship, I am praying that these men will be able to experience that kind of relationship, that kind of fellowship with one another. He says in verse 12, While I was with them, I protected them and I kept them safe by that name you gave me. And we sang about it this weekend at all of our campuses. There is nothing like the name of Jesus. He says, I kept them safe. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that the Scriptures could be fulfilled. Who's that? Reference to Judas. Jesus talked about it earlier in John chapter 6, verse 7. He looked at the disciples and he said, one of you is the devil, right? It was going to happen. It's part of the prophecy. By the way, let me just say this. If you take the time to study the life of the disciples, you will see that these were individualistic men. They were stubborn. They were thick-headed. They were rough around the edges. There were times where they were unteachable. There were certainly times where they were proud. Yet Jesus prayed, I want you to take these tough-minded, individualistic men, and I want you to build them into a unit. I want you to build them into a team. I have sitting right down here, they're not hard to spot, but the defensive coordinator from NC State walked in this morning, and behind me, these really big guys, and he says, This is my linebacking core for next year. And I said, How did you get them to church this weekend? He said, I told him we were going to church this weekend, right? But you know what? They're here as a team, and I guarantee you, his one thought now as they're entering into spring practice is that God, make them a team, make them a unit. Amen. I guarantee you, North North Carolina's linebackers are not in church this weekend, so you guys are going to be way ahead of them this year, by the way. I just want to say that, right? So anyway, yeah. See, they haven't come in from the bars, and you guys are in church. You guys are going to go undefeated. But there's also a second request. Jesus prayed for the disciples to be protected from Satan. Look what it says in verse 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. We talked about this last week. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. My prayer is you protect them from Satan. So Jesus basically prays, leave them in the world, but preserve them and protect them. Now, last week, if you were here, I said, it's not a question of isolation. It's a question of insulation. And so Jesus basically says, insulate them so that they can impact the world without actually being impacted by the world. And he says, do it in such a way that they're not discouraged. Do it in such a way that they're not destroyed by Satan. Now, why is, why is protection and unity, why is that so important to Jesus? I think it's because Jesus knew that Satan spots disunity. Whenever there's disunity, he hits us where we're weak, And that's why Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. By the way, you know what that tells me? We can't create unity. We can't make unity. The Spirit of God gives unity, and it's our job to keep it, to cultivate it. It's our job to protect the unity. So Jesus prays for protection. He prays for unity. But I want you to notice the third request in verse 17. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Now, sanctify. Ooh, there's a big old churchy religious word. In fact, I see somebody yawning real big over there right now. Just there. Let's see, I caught you. It's like the whole Grand Canyon. She just disappeared for a second, but she's back. She's back. (laughs) Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. What does it mean to sanctify? Well, if you ask the average Christian, they don't really know how to explain it, but this is what they're thinking. To be sanctified is... It's kind of like a spiritual enema. I don't know how else to describe it. It just kind of washes all the sin right out of it. You see, that's, that's what it means to be sanctified. That's not what it means to be sanctified. The word sanctified means to set apart for a specific or a certain purpose. In other words, it's, it's the idea of setting something aside so that it can reach, it can accomplish its intended purpose. For example, this podium is sanctified. This morning, it's serving its purpose. It's set apart for its purpose. Your seat is sanctified. When you walked into whatever campus you walked into this weekend, you chose that seat. You sat down in that seat, and now it is serving its intended purpose. That's exactly what this word means. So think of it that way. And so Jesus prays, set these men apart for their intended purpose. What was their intended purpose? It was to spread the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. It was to spread the gospel. So Jesus says, set these men apart for that purpose so that when I'm gone, they never lose the vision. They never lose the passion, which brings up a good question. How do you and I get sanctified? How do we get set apart for God's intended purpose for our lives? Because each one of us, God has an intended purpose for our lives. Well, the answer is in verse 17. He says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. You know what that means? You cannot live a fully intentional life as a follower of Jesus Christ. You cannot reach your full kingdom potential. You will never be the person God created you and designed you to be apart from God's word. Why? Verse 17. Jesus said, your word is truth. And I think what he was saying is this. If you drift from the source of the truth, God's word what happens is you move into a wasteland of subjecti- uh, subjectivity and, and, and just, and just kind of human opinion. And invariably, when you leave the foundation, the absolutes of God's word, and you, and you move into that area, well, you're going to be led astray. You're going to be led astray. I deal with people almost every day. And they'll sit in my office and they'll ask me this question. How did I ever get here? Where did I go wrong? Where did I get off the path? And I'm telling you, invariably, it's when people get away from the absolutes of God's Word. And they move into that wasteland of subjectivity and human opinion and what the girlfriend thinks or what the guy at the water cooler told him. And they begin to make decisions. And all of a sudden, I'm telling you, if you live your life without regular contact with the Word of God... The world's philosophy is just one step away from moving in. So Jesus prays, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Let me tell you something. The best thing you could do as it relates to your spiritual growth, your spiritual transformation. What God wants to do in your life is to make the decision that you're going to spend significant time in God's word. It may, means that you have to, it may mean that you have to get up 10 or 15 minutes before you go to work earlier than you normally would or before you're on campus, before you go to your class and you just spend a little bit of time absorbing reading God's word. Or maybe you get a phone app where you can actually listen to it while you're walking to classes or driving wherever you're driving. But you immerse yourself in God's word. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. That's all introduction. This is what I really wanted to talk about. Jesus isn't finished praying yet. He just changes the focus one more time. Verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. Now look at this. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Now let me just say something. If you're here this weekend and you're a Christian, that's you. That's you. In fact, you could put your name... In the margin, right beside John 17, 20, in fact, I have in the margin of my Bible, right there in John 17, 20, Jesus prayed for me. Because now all of a sudden, he's praying for everyone who's going to believe, and verse 21 tells us what he prayed for, that all of them may be one. In other words, Jesus prays, listen, Father, as my disciples begin to spread the gospel throughout the world, I pray for the first century believers. I pray for those who are going to become believers in the 4th century. I pray for those who are going to become believers in the 8th century. I pray for those who are going to become believers during the Reformation. I pray for those who are going to become believers during the 19th century. I pray for those who are going to become uh, believers during the Great Awakening in England. I pray for those who are going to become believers in the 20th century. That's me. That's a lot of us. But Then he says, I pray for those who are going to become believers... In the 21st century. And that's many of you also. But notice what he prays for in verse 21. That all of them may be one. Verse 22. I have given them the glory that you have given me, that they may be one as we are one. Verse 23. I in them, you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Now look what he says. This next phrase is so important. Then the world will know that you sent me. In other words, when all believers are unified, when they are one, when they are working as a unit, then the world will know that you sent me. Now, when you read the word church in the New Testament, there's two different kinds of church. There's a local church. Hope Community would be a local church. We're a local body of believers. There are many churches throughout the triangle. That would be one. And then there is the the universal church, which would be all believers of Jesus Christ through all time anywhere in the world. Now, those of us who are in church circles, we often refer to the local church as the little C church, and we refer to the big church of all Christians, all believers, as the big C church. Now, forget about Hope Community Church. I mean, forget about our unity. By the way, we have incredible unity. We may have experienced something in Hope Community Church. And I'm not kidding when I say this. I don't know that any other church has ever experienced since Acts chapter 2. And I'll tell you what it is. In 22 years of business meetings... And I figured this out. 22 years of business meetings. Over those 22 years, we've approved and spent millions and millions and millions, way over $100 million hundred million dollars in the community and the world. On top of that, we voted people into leadership. We've made decisions about are we going to build a campus, are we going to move, are we going to do this. We've had probably over 100,000 people vote in those 22 years. And do you know with over 100,000 votes that we've had less than 10 no votes? 10 no votes in 22 years. I'm telling you, that is unheard of in most churches. But forget our unity. Think about the unity. Let's just say the triangle. The, The unity of all our different congregations in the triangle. Churches who teach the gospel, who believe the message of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you a question. When our lost friends look at our churches in the triangle... Do they see unity? Do you think that they would conclude Jesus must be who he said he is? There's no other way to explain this kind of unity? I don't think so. I mean, think about it. Acts chapter 2, when the church began, one church. Peter stood up in the streets of Jerusalem, shared the gospel, the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. 3,000 people converted to Christianity. That began the church. And even as God began to spread the church out of Jerusalem, it was one church. But over time, there were fractions, factions. Over time, there were divisions. There were cracks, debates, and arguments over doctrines, you know, like in times. Is Jesus coming back before the tribulation, during the tribulation, after the tribulation? Well, we can't agree. We better start our own denomination, right? Over baptism, do we sprinkle you? Or do we dunk you? We can't agree. We better start our own denomination. How do you dress when you go to church? I had a guy come up to me and says, man, I love this church, but it really bothers me that everybody dresses so casual. I believe that when you go to church, you show your Sunday best. I'm like, really? You think you can live like a hellion all week and put a tie on on the weekend and that's going to impress God? I don't think so, right? right? Well, we better start a whole new denomination, right? Worship style. Some churches have no musical instruments. Ours is like a Madonna concert. You know I mean? It's just, you know, right? How about the work and the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives? Woo, can't agree on that. We better start a whole denomination. How about communion? We can't even decide, should it be wine or should it be grape juice? In fact, we serve grape juice and people ask me all the time, why? It's because I know you people. And I know if we had a good vintage at communion, you guys would keep getting in the back of the line and going through it again. So it was like, we don't, we don't want to get into that situation, Right. We better start a whole new denomination. Did you know that now there are 217 denominations just in the United States that use the same Bible and preach the same gospel and preach Jesus Christ? And we can't even have a conversation. We don't even speak to one another. But this is what Paul said. Paul, the great apostle Paul, right? Philippians chapter 1, verse 15. He says, it is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, others out of goodwill. The latter, the ones out of goodwill, do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But look what he says, what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And Paul says, because of this I rejoice. Yes, I will continue to rejoice. See, we don't do that, though. We don't agree to disagree as long as Christ, the gospel, is being preached. You know what we do? We focus what we don't agree on. We focus on what makes us different. And as a result, it creates all kinds of disunity among believers. And we come away with the superiority. You know, we're the ones who are really right, and you are wrong. I mean, think about this, though. In Jesus' last hours on earth, he could have prayed for anything. And he prayed for us. And he could have prayed for anything on our behalf. He could have said, Father, make sure they're wealthy. Make sure they're healthy. Make sure they have great marriages. Make sure they have strong families. Make sure they protect the planet that I created. He could have prayed for anything. And he prayed for unity. Why, verse 23? Because then the world will know that you sent me. So understand, when you come to the final aspect as to what was most important to Jesus right up before his death, it was the unity of all his believers. Now, why was that so important to him? Well, as surprising as it may sound, that was his strategy to change the world. Look what it says in verse 21. That all of them may be one. Not just us, not just the believers at Hope Community Church, but the believers at Hope Community Church, and the believers at the Summit, and the believers at Colonial, and the believers at St. Michael's, and the believers at Eden Street Methodist, and the believers at Peace Presbyterian, and the believers at World Overcomers, and Kings Park, and even that little legalistic Liberty Baptist Church that I grew up in. That all may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world will believe that you have sent me. Verse 23, I in them, you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me. Jesus' strategy to change the world. No mention of missionaries, no mention of mega churches, no mention of gifted evangelists. Jesus simply prayed, Father, keep them in unity. So the world will witness it and say, wow, there is no way this could happen unless Jesus Christ really was who he said he was, unless he was the Son of God. I'm talking about Catholics, Presbyterians, Baptists, Methodists, Charismatics, Fundamentals, red, yellow, black, white, all living in harmony and unity together, one. That hasn't exactly happened, has it? And maybe that explains why the world's in such a mess. And maybe that explains why there are more lost people percentage-wise on planet Earth than ever in the history of the world. It's because I think the world looks at us and responds, wow, (laughs) you guys can't even get along with each other. You guys can't even agree on what you believe. If that's what you're selling, I think I'll pass. You see, the only thing they know about the body of Christ, the church, the big C, is that we argue, fight, criticize, split, divide. And they never forget it Now, i just want to go on record and say my my christian journey hasn't always been characterized by unity i grew up in a free will baptist church very legalistic we can only read the king james bible we believed in third degree separation so you people don't even know what that is but that means i may like you but you hang out with him and he's a jerk so i'm not gonna hang out with you okay that's the third degree of separation so we would just stay we were it was us four no, no more And I'm embarrassed to say this, but I'm just being honest. Church I grew up in, if you were African American, you came to the afternoon service. We were that segregated. And then I went off to a fundamental Bible college. The first time I was there, we had a chapel service and said, this is why we do not agree with Billy Graham. Right? Right? Later on, when Jerry Falwell started Liberty University, we had a whole week of chapel services. This is why we do not agree with Jerry Falwell at Liberty University. You could only read the King James Bible. You were not even allowed to have another Bible. 99.9% of the music in the world you were not allowed to listen to. Blacks weren't even allowed into the university until I was there during the early 1970s. Even then, there was no interracial dating. It wasn't just blacks and whites, it was Asians, Latinos, it was anybody. I mean, it was that segregated. And for most of my life, if I describe my ministry, I was known for what I didn't believe. I was one of those fighting fundamentalists, you know, and I, you know, and I was going to straighten out the world. I was going to fix the world, you know. And then I married a little hot chick from California. Messed me up cheerleader, you know what I'm saying? We got engaged. I went to California, visited her church. Two guys with beards and a long stringy blonde-haired girl got up with an acoustic guitar. I thought, this whole place is going to hell. What in the world is going on around here? And I'm married into this, right? Like I said, now it's like Aerosmith up here on the weekends. And, uh, and it took a while. It took a while. Specifically, it, it took three years of a guy, when I went to seminary over pastoral ministries, Neil Anderson, who knew a little bit about this because he wrote a book entitled Bondage Breakers, How to Break Bondages in Your Life. Three years of him working on me, God sanding off the edges. And as a result, when God led me here to start Hope, I determined that there would be one major emphasis and it would be a positive influence concerning Jesus Christ, not, not just at Hope, but throughout our community. And I know some of you are getting really nervous right now because this smells a compromise to you and none of us like that, Right? So I wanna just go on record. I'm not talking about hedging on biblical proofs and principles. in fact, I made a list. These are the absolutes that we will never compromise on at Hope Community Church. These are non-negotiables. The absolute inerrancy of the Bible. We believe that God's word is without error. It is directly from God. We don't apologize for that. The deity of Jesus Christ, his virgin birth, his sinlessness, his death on the cross for man's sins, his bodily resurrection from the grave, his return to earth one day, the assignment of those without Christ to hell, the assignment of those with Christ to heaven, Those are our absolutes. They're not for change. I'm not even going to debate them with you. So I'm not talking about compromising on any of these absolutes. See, I'm just just talking about some basic Christian tolerance so we can have unity. A couple of weeks ago, Laura and I were at dinner with some other pastors and their wives. And these were pastors, to be honest with you, five years ago I would have never sat down with. We, We disagree on a lot of things. We look different. We have different ideas about different things, doctrines in the Bible. But as we sat around the table having dinner, this is what we came to the conclusion. Hey, listen, if we can all agree that everything begins and ends with the gospel, and we don't care who gets the credit, we can partner together. And it's amazing what God will be able to do through our churches in the community. And we're taking that seriously. I'm going to tell you, you do not want to miss the first weekend of May, May 6th and 7th. You wanna be here, even change your vacation to be here. I will not be here. I won't be here. (laughs) And the reason I won't be here, I'm gonna be about 20 minutes away at World Overcomers Church, which I think is the largest African-American church in the state of North Carolina. And I'm gonna be there preaching. In fact, a couple of weeks ago when Donnie was preaching on the weekend, I came on Saturday night to hear Donnie and then I went to World Overcomers on Sunday morning me and Gary, other than two staff that were white. We were the two white guys there. I mean, we stood out a little bit. And uh, they set us right on the front row, right in front of where Andy would be speaking. And I mean, they know how to worship. I'm serious. I was, whoo! I sat down afterwards. I leaned over to Gary. I said, man, if I'm going to speak here, i got to have a nap and a, and, and, and a snack before I preach. I can't follow that, right? I'm too old. But I'm going to be there speak, speaking that weekend. And then Andy is going to be here speaking that weekend. But I'm just telling you this because we are serious about breaking down the barriers and the walls. And there's a paradigm shift going on. For example, Gary Vett, who's been probably our most valued employee on staff. I bet my staff would say he's a lot more valuable than me. And he's been over our spiritual formation for years. But I went to him last year and I said, I got a new role for you. You're moving out of spiritual formation. You're my liaison to other pastors and other churches in the community about how we can come together and work together to make sure that every man, woman, and child in the triangle has multiple opportunities to hear and respond to the gospel. And that's what he's doing now. This year, I'm tithing 10% of my time outside of Hope Community Church with other pastors and other churches so that we can get this going. We've taken about a percentage of our budget this year, which is about $200,000 that we can use working with other churches to see this become a reality. Because we're going to focus on the big sea, not just the little sea. You know what my dream is one day for our small groups? That they're not hope people. See, our hope small groups, you get together and basically complain about the music was too loud. We're going to change this up. My dream is that you'll look around your neighborhood and find out who are the other Christians, believers, regardless of what church they go to. And you band together and become a small group and you partner together so that every man, woman, and child in your community, in your neighborhood, has multiple opportunities to hear and respond to the gospel. That's what I'm hoping for. A couple of weeks, or Friday a week ago, I spoke at a young man's ordination. His name's Dylan Dawson. He grew up in our church. He's starting a brand new congregation up around Creedmoor Road in 540. And he's got about 30 people as he launches this new church. And we're going to have a campus in North Raleigh. I'm just not sure when. You know what I thought? I thought, how cool would it be if some of you who commute all the way down from North Raleigh went and helped him, volunteered, tithe your money there instead of here, but that's what I'm talking about. That's how we reach the triangle. That's how we change the world. That was Jesus' plan. I and them, you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me. That's what Jesus prayed for. And my goal is to do my part to see if his prayer can be realized in our lifetime. And all I'm asking of you is this. Will you join me? Will you join me? Father, thank you. Thank you for your prayer for us. To think that you pray for me. And you pray for all of us as believers. Father, I wish we could get, a, I wish we could get over ourselves. I wish we could get to the place where we're really, really serious about what you've called us to do. But we don't take ourselves all that seriously. Because there are some things in your your word, absolutes. We're not going to compromise on those. There's so much that we will just break fellowship with just because we have our own opinions, our own interpretation, our own perspective. Use us to be the church that sets the pace to make a difference in our community and in our world. In your name we pray, amen.